What's uh, what's free time? I don't know what that is. What? 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 Free time? Free time. What, 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 what are the words that are coming out like? Who's time and why do we why is do we it, need to free time? Y'all, y'all chose it. Is it like free thug but free time? Like is it do I have to like so I just get some time for free does that mean I get some clocks? That's what it is, I think. Free No, it's like you know what it is? It's like free Gucci man, but it's like time is a guy. It's like when you have to pay for parking in a national like in the forest. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So you played field hockey? I did play field hockey. Nice. I was Why'd you play field? Well, I snuck on the team, actually. My my parents did not want me to play sports because it would get in the way of my academics. Um, typical Indian, um, you know, background. But they let me play tennis because that was kosher. That was very acceptable. Ah, uh, the, the rich, like, white people in, like, country club sports. Yeah. Let's go. Indians play field hockey. Like, it's a big sport in India. So really? I, snuck, I started playing in the uh, summer with friends who were playing, and I was really excited, and I signed up for it. I told my mom, she signed the letter, and then eventually we told my dad. So this was in high school? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I got the best grades of my life while I played field hockey. Yeah, you know, like, that's the thing, like... Because, again, it's all about the combination of mind, body, and spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or just not having to study for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or you know, getting get some of that anger out. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Did, like yeah, I played a uh, you know yeah we talk about this in the south like you grow up like everyone plays football. I I play football. Uh, would I let my kids play football? No. Yeah, I went to a university that didn't have a football football team, mm-hmm. which was just telling. For like undergrad or. Undergrad. I mean, technically, my university. Didn't either, but since ours was part of the UNC system, we all basically just kind of shared Jeez. Chapel Hill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you're when you're part of the UNC school system, you're just like you're you're a Tar Heel mm-hmm. automatically, even if you're not really a Tar Heel. High school football was a big deal, you know. That was like, if my private school did not did not have a football team. So you're so when you went to so you went to private so, school, they didn't have a football team. No, they had. Our fall sport was literally men's soccer. Really? Yes. Huh. So, very much of that European mindset. Yeah. But like, it's not like we didn't play football at Like, that was so weird, because the, the school you went to, was it a Catholic school? No, it was a non-denominational, like, private school. Yeah, so what we went to... But I think, we both know the history behind, like, why private schools were made a thing in the South. Oh, yeah. We talked about that on a different episode. Yes. But yeah, so, but in, yeah, like, Catholic school is just, like, you know, there's this thing, like, uh, in the South, it's, like, it's about family, religion, and football. Those are the most important things, you know? That generally is kind of the same mindset in where I was at, but, again, not very much of a focus. Like, in, in, in C, like, sports were, was everything. Oh, yeah, it like, is everything. We pride ourselves a lot on, like, every single sport. Basketball is in the Mainly, yeah. Basketball is like the main go ahead. Like, birthplace of Michael Jordan. But do you guys have any professional? Yes. Teams? The Charlotte Hornets. Charlotte Hornets. Carolina Panthers. Carolina Panthers. Oh gosh, they're your. <laughs> they're yeah, again, our, prof- our professional teams need a lot of work. Yeah. Our collegiate teams, top notch. Well, it's like Connecticut. Our professional sports are non existent once the Whalers were gone. Well, there's the, the WNBA the team. Oh, 
because he's yeah yeah but <laughs> I meant to block me out because I messed that up <laughs> but we got the Huskies mm -hmm. right? so college sports is there UConn yeah but did you uh, go to like a like for high school was it a public school I went to public schools we were the Watertown Indians so I was sometimes asked like oh you can be the like, mascot, whoa, whoa. you know. Um, but yeah, it was a public school in a small town, twenty thousand people. Football was the center of the attention. Sports, it was like you were cool. It was typical, you know, what you would see in your Friday night lights. Yeah, that was a yeah. That was the story of my school too. It was yeah, just like it was so. I always find it weird how like every like school administrator and teacher like valued football over like education yeah and we had a private school in town and it was them versus us yeah and you would like when you went, in, went into a certain after school hangout we hung out at the gas station after school they hung out at the like the caviar the health food prep food place like the a fancy restaurant the cafe mm -hmm. oh, i thought it would be like the country oh. club the caviar the caviar store. that was literally one of the spots at my private school was like because our private school was right next to a country club and that's where a lot of our facilities were was located at but yeah that used to be a thing because a lot of the families already had memberships mm -hmm. and you know from time to time i'll go in there with them because like they just shine in just say i'm th this such such like son and or daughter and they're like Going in, not questioning anything, but I don't even know if my town has a country club. I'm sure it does, but that shows my status in town. Yeah, mm -hmm. but like that, a gas station was y'all's like a hangout spot in high school. Yeah, yeah. Ours was a lot of like restaurants, mm -hmm. more so cookout. For us, it was like honestly, and you're gonna laugh at me for this, but yeah, you're gonna you're gonna roast me for this, and then we'll get into the show. But uh, it's the sewer. Whoa, wait, you went into a sewer? Yeah. Like you would open the sewer thing and climb down into a sewer? Yeah. Wow. Louisiana. Dirty South. Dirty, dirty. They're, they're like the deep, dirty South. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a, oh my God, like what? you Louisiana swamp donkeys are crazy. I know, it's crazy, <laughs> man. You know, like gators and stuff. Anyway, let's get, let's start that show. <laughs> Southern Fried Humanitarian Podcast, the only podcast where your two hosts are humanitarian workers from the South discussing regionality, cultural differences, living far away from home. I'm Sam, joined by my faithful co-host, Prey. Welcome, everybody. Yep. And to get a very special guest, uh, a person who needs no introduction, but we're going to get, we're going to do it anyway. Please welcome to the stage, the Banana Pudding. Thank you. Well, the banana pudding, you know, welcome to the show. Uh, the Southern Good. Fried Humanitarian. So, uh, yeah, we're here today discussing about, like, you know, nonprofit, or, you know, nonprofits, because obviously we work in the nonprofit sector and just sort of like, and we are really happy we got you the, to come on the show with the kind of our the higher up so we're interested yeah. in to see how, like how the today we're really interested to see how like that administrative processes really work yeah and of course we would love to share what your title is but because of our show's anonymity 
we apologize we are not allowed to disclose that, but we can say that the banana pudding is part of the administrative side of the humanitarian. And I think one of my first questions would be for you, banana pudding, was why did you select, you know, a career in humanitarian work or in this field of like nonprofit like humanitarian work? You know, I I wonder that a lot sometimes um, when I look back on my career when I was forced to think about a certain direction that would be standard within my cultural norms, right? To to be a doctor, to be an engineer, and those kinds of things. But I think it started because my family is um, are immigrants, and I grew up first generation, and grew up going back to my parents' country of origin, and just being exposed to both in the in the U.S. and abroad various cultures, various situations, various access to opportunities, um, and knowing my parents' own story about why they came, I think I always just felt I should give back. No matter where my status is, no matter you know what I'm doing, I should be giving back. And so it just was a natural calling. In high school, I was building schools in our honor society and I think nonprofits just spoke to my values, and I wanted my values to align with the work I was going to do. Yeah, I've, I kind of resonate with that because, like, my parents again were immigrants, um, and technically, if you were born here from uh, immigrant parents, you were technically second generation. Uh, I argue with that, man. I still think I'm first generation. See, now I I was on your side for a long time. Yeah. Until like my sister actually broke it down, like uh, methodology through her own research. Uh, like, she quoted in a book she published? Yes. <laughs> that, that's, oh, man. That's, no, no. She's she is literally getting a doctorate in like um, equity education. That's fair. I guess it's how you look at generations, right? They, my parents are the first of, they are the first generation to be here, yeah. to start up things, but then we are the first generation to be born and build off of yeah where they came from yeah. yeah but i always kind of think about like you know you probably have relatives who were born overseas came over here but you know grew up essentially in america you know yeah i mean i just found out i, I should have known but it just clicked to me the other day i have um family visiting from abroad um, their first time leaving their area their country and i was thinking about my mom and my dad have lived most of their life in the U.S. now at this point, which is just, I, it took me aback because I still see them so much deeply rooted in who, where they came from. Yeah, that's how I view my parents too, because it's just, they spend majority of their lives here than back in their home country, and I think where I was going with it, because like my parents were very much, when they first came into the area, they were a part of the huge immigrant community. You know, it was at the time very small, tight-knit, uh, and kind of expanded out. So, you know, a lot of times they would have convenience stores all throughout the city, uh, and they would also be part of, like, you know, helping out refugees, like Bhutanese refugees, um, helping them, like, get, like, jobs. And, you know, my dad always had a good heart when it came to, like, understand that they uh, would require some assistance in trying to get at least something. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, sometimes we would just go and drop off a huge bag of rice so they can eat. Um, no, 
So bags of rice. So you dropped off bags of rice. Yeah. So that's like that's how I got into the foray of like you know like helping out uh, immigrants and humanitarian immigrants. It was uh, also my uncle who. Again, my family has a lot of PhDs in it, and it's just like go. it's always kind of like oh, okay now, no matter what I get, I still have uncles that are doctors, siblings that are doctors. Again, it's not like the stereotypical realm of like forced career paths that most like uh, well most people from our like mm -hmm. ethnic side of the world will probably understand my parents were actually more progressive than anything else they they kind of like just made sure that as long as we followed our dreams and do the right thing that's all they really cared about because yeah. I mean our family beforehand were there were more like you know educators or uh, administrators, hands of kings. Yeah. My parents, I mean, my parents grew up in a certain, they were of a certain group within their country, and um, but grew up very differently, one well off, one not well off, um, you know, 13 people to a house, no food. My father was, and his older brothers were the breadwinners, and so they came here for that better life. They weren't necessarily refugees being forced to flee, but in some ways there is when your opportunity, you know, what is your opportunity? But it, they were very progressive as well, and not necessary. I mean, I got the like, you make a good doctor, and I'd be like, I know, but not gonna happen. Yeah. But what I think shows their openness to explore what you wanted to be is when my sister was five, and I was still like in my mom's womb. They said, if we want our daughters to marry someone from where we came from we go back now otherwise we embrace where we are and we're open in every sense of it from what they choose to do who they choose to be with how they choose to live so that's an interesting like pivot. that's a very interesting like pivotal moment mm -hmm. like it kind of I, I how I, I I would be curious and then we'll get back to like the standard yeah. interview questions but like I'd be curious to know like what brought about like that pivotal moment like it was just the fact that like they figured out like oh she or it's a girl or was it like I think it was a couple of different things I think at that point my my sister was almost starting like regular school mm -hmm. so they had to make a choice of like investing and then my parents were originally arranged for marriage and then there was rumors that my dad who was doing his grad school in Iowa had a second family here um, to which this day we're like, hey dad, when are we going to meet our, our half-siblings, our you know, stepmom, and our, you know, all your side hustles. Um, and my mother's paternal grandmother and grandfather, no, my mother's dad and uncle called off the wedding. And my mom was in a different place doing her medical school and said, no, I'm, I'm marrying this man. And so she was essentially disowned for a while. Um, and back in the 70s, that's a big deal. It, Especially where they're from and so I think he did not want that to be a situation that they endured or that we endured and so um, also for me to find out it was my dad who brought that up I was like oh you know pretty progressive for a, a man at that point in, in the 80s and but it kind of like that kind of story kind of reminded me of like how because it was the same situation with like my, my uncle he was the one that kind of brought us all over because mm -hmm. uh, my, my paternal grandfather actually passed away when my father was young and he was therefore had to step up and kind of like help his uh the rest of his family uh 
but his older brother, my uncle, actually got a one of the first like you know immigrant scholarships to come to the U.S. and get a get his degree here. That's where he met uh, my aunt, who was actually from Connecticut, and moved down to NC. Sorry, they downgraded. No, they upgraded. Yeah. They really, they really upgraded. This interview is over. <laughs> they they really they didn't really upgrade, uh, but he was able to bring all of them over after getting them through and his citizenship through, he literally like left my aunt for another woman and like Ooh. moved down to Florida. So then he downgraded. So you don't tell this story in your work as a way to motivate others, right? Yeah, that feels <laughs> kind of, it feels like we're blurring the lines of like, I just, it feels kind of sexist too. We were like, here's, yeah, but here's the thing, we kind of like, we didn't stick with him. We kind of like, Forgot him and actually kept the aunt. Yeah. And to this to this day, she is like a grandma to me. Yeah, that's great. He's the yeah. deadbeat cousin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, to this day, I've only met him once in my life, <laughs> and that's it. Maybe he needs to be on this podcast one day. Maybe he uh, does. Nah, <laughs> nah I ain't gonna do that. He'll, <laughs> he'll listen to the podcast and be like, "I need to get on this podcast." Yeah, but what are we gonna do with someone who has like a degree in or a PhD in animal husbandry? I mean, that. I, I know. There's a lot. I could talk. I could talk to him about like. You know, cow stomachs. Uh, well, and also cow, cattle is often a source of, of contention in a lot of countries where there is conflict. Mm -hmm. Wow, you guys actually have a lot of like deep intellectual thoughts about this. Well, when I heard you had a degree uh, in animal husbandry, I was like, that just literally like, you have a degree in animal <laughs> Well, not necessarily, but also like, aren't a, there, there are certain cultures in like uh, South Asia, if I'm correct me wrong, that like, prescribed like a divinity to cows, is yep. that right? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so there so you know, there's a lot to talk about. But he doesn't just focus on bovines. Well yeah, we could talk about chickens and the tax breaks that are associated in the American agricultural system with uh, you know, animals. You know, I, mean, I, pigs. I mean I might try to get my other uncle that actually has a PhD in like uh, Peace and Conflict Studies that actually works for the Peace and Conflict Institute in California. Oh, no, no. I would much rather him, too. That's but I'm just right. saying, yep. what, what are we... What is it as interesting? What yeah, are that we was gonna... actually my foray into how I got into humanitarian work and resettlement was through him. But what are we going to... But, like, you asked, what are we going to talk about with a guy with a PhD in animal husbandry? We just gave you a bunch of answers. I got, I got more if you need it. Yeah. So. We got... <laughs> Put the... I'm just saying, I don't like the man because the way he did my aunt dirty. Yeah. That's fair. That's got fair. It. That's fair. But we just simply answered the question. Now, segueing back. Oh, what? I'm a little <laughs> But segueing back, what were your, like, you know, pathways to get into this current position? Like, how did you, like, stumble upon, like, both academically and, you know, professionally? Long story short. Which one? I mean, I could. I'll say it's a long story. Yeah. And then, yeah. So, I mean, or I. Or medium think story. I. I mean, college was what it was. I not like and like not to say a waste because it was a lot of money, but it was as far as academically went. You know, I think you're too young to decide what you want to study when you're 18 and to make good use of it. But a moment in college is when I studied abroad, um, and I did the International Honors Program, which is now sits with SIT. That's in Vermont. Um, super woo woo, hippie yuppie but really cool program that, that you guys should look into and see if there's people you want to explore there to talk to. But um, 
and they took me and it was about indigenous perspectives so we went from the southeast or southwest in Diné or Navajo country to the northeast in India looking at the Meghalaya the Mizoram and the Kasi people to New Zealand um, with the Maori people and then to Mexico where we were with in Chiapas working with an indigenous group there and then the Zapatista so like Subcommando Marco look them up it's pretty fascinating stuff and in that we were kind of looking at how their perspective of land of knowledge of governance shaped um, the way they they lived but then was also taken away because of colonization and um, democracy or capitalism whichever choice you want to to pick for that and in that moment I was just fascinated by the idea of like knowledge is not just school right it's not just your rote material and the perspective that you get from reading the classics in AP English is not you know what's going to set you up to really connect to the world you're in and so for me that and especially looking at how it, with the Maori they um, completely they forced them to go to standard school and they said no you cannot go to this knowledge like your type of school you must learn what we're saying and they took them away from their own way of learning and connecting with the land and so I took that and decided to do a, a teaching fellowship and I became a teacher for two years um, in, in a city um, and I taught special ed and it was a culmination of that and wanting to do something international and, and also wanting to make a difference that I went back and got my degree in international educational development, um, a master's in that. And through a graduate assistantship I had with the, with the professor who worked at uh, a very um, well-known humanitarian organization, I landed my first job in Liberia. And from there, I caught what they call the humanitarian bug. And I was in Liberia. Do they go to that? Mm -hmm. I've never heard this. I've, yeah, there is a humanitarian, it's the bug. It's you, you get addicted to, I don't know if it's the adrenaline, to the, you know, the whatever it is. But I went two years in Liberia. I was in South Sudan and Congo. I spent two years in Iraq, a year in Afghanistan. And then I did. Um, about a year what they call humanitarian response with an organization and so I would fly out within three days notice to places like I was in Syria um, I was when the typhoon hit in Haiyan, um, in Philippines typhoon Haiyan I was I went there um, yeah and it just it became a lifestyle so I never thought sitting in my international relations course uh, freshman year that I would be you know running around the world working side by side with people but it kind of I think was a natural evolution of where I came from I think like it, it kind of remind me of like so you kind of got into the human factor of you know the nonprofit humanitarian sector uh, you know that's kind of like a huge topic when it comes to like you know when we talk about public administration and a lot of uh, Key organizational structures is that like a lot of the work you're doing you also got to focus on the human side you know not since you're in the administrative field you also have to look at like not only just the people you serve but also your employees yeah. and like the human factor of you know building the relationships getting that connection and I feel like 
you no wonder you caught like the humanitarian bug because if you got sent to all those places i, I would have caught it too i'm like dang yeah. i'm getting sent everywhere well mm -hmm. you meet some of the most passionate people about uh, like uh, about their own culture and about their own country and and you want to work side by side building the systems or helping them build the systems because they know better than you right um and I think that's the same in my job here. I am not an expert in any one of the technical fields that I work in, but my job is to stand by the people who are and say, how can I help make this job easier? How can I you know, make things flow better so you can focus in on what's important for that person you're working with who needs help? That's actually a great way to put it in. Uh, going off that, like, what would like your typical workday actually encompass? Oh, Is there a typical? Um... <laughs> it doesn't have to be typical, just like, generally, you can be like, you know, tell us about your day today. Tell me about Or my day like, you know, on this day, like, usually like, hits man. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there is, there is always a moment in the day where hits the fan, um, and that is usually escalated to me. So I think my day-to-day what, what I usually, it's a lot of one-on-ones with staff I work with, um, talking about what they do and growing their professional development. It is a lot of, hey, I'm having difficulty with this uh, client, can you work with them? Um, so oftentimes when I am meeting the clients we work with, it's because things have not gone well. But then, I mean, I have, when I meet that client several months or years later in the office, I'm like, I remember you. I know where you came from. We're doing better, right? Um, and then it's meetings with donors, uh, meetings with senior staff. It's trying to coordinate among all the different teams that are um, in the office I work with to make sure they're communicating and making sure that people just have the tools that they need to do the work. And it's also fighting um, our headquarters and others to make sure that the workload isn't too top down, which, you know, you win some, you lose some. Yeah, it kind of also got me thinking about like, you know, a lot of the stuff, especially in anything that relates to like public works that serve, serves people even in nonprofit realms, there's always like politics involved, yeah. um, you know, not only that, but like, there's different avenues because like, there's things in, in the nonprofit sector that we are able to do that governmental organizations or agencies are not even capable of doing. There's set procedures; they just can't up and do it like we can. In which which case, kind of like you know, it kind of goes back to like that public nonprofit relationship. Um, can you speak on like how you've seen that? What kind of politics that you had to type of play with or just? Yeah. I, I, you know, and I have worked for the government before, um, so I've seen it from that side. Um, and it is, there are bureaucracies, but there are bureaucracies in a nonprofit as well. Um, there is always an agenda, and, and sometimes the word agenda gets a negative connotation to it, but there's always a goal. What are we trying to do? And that's always. I think from a government perspective comes from the constituents that it serves, which is not going to be monolith, right? And so it's trying to help everyone um, to get to a goal, which in our world is humanitarian. 
um, and you would think is not political, but has become very political, um, but it's tied to money. And when things are tied to money, there's always gonna be certain um, contentions with it. So I'm trying to think of, you know, the kinds of things I see are the requirements that are asked of um, nonprofits to showcase the work that they've done, and sometimes it's more performative than it actually is getting to the point of what the work is, so not really, like, give us the numbers. Well, is that what you, what's important, or is it the stories? Um, it's also like, we want to spend this money on this, and it's bouncing back and saying like, but is that the best, best place to put the money? Is that what it is? And so it's always a conversation, but sometimes things do come to you um, rather than a discussion. And in those moments, sometimes you have to take it, sometimes you can push back. And it's finding that, um, that balance. And my current supervisor is very good at finding that balance of knowing where to push back, where to advocate, and where to be like, okay, we'll do it, but Yeah, but do you think that like when it comes to like any sort of organization, like it is my experience that be it a club or you know a government or just a nonprofit that like internal politics are just kind of the norm. Oh, 100. It goes back to what Frey was saying. We're humans. Yeah. Like, you cannot take the human side out of this work. We work for humans, but we are also humans, and it is messy. Um, and sometimes it's good messy, sometimes it's bad messy. But yeah, I don't think I've worked anywhere where there wasn't some inkling of politics. Um, but the, the important part, is it to better what you're doing or is it because people are looking for power or is it for because the people don't really understand the problem? So it's sometimes the politics are for a good cause Hopefully. Yeah. yeah, and then like it kind of comes to like a greater point of like, well, you know, if you just kind of play this little politics game, you'll be able to get more money out of it, and you'll be able to help more people with it. Oh, there's definitely that. But how much like how far removed? I I would be curious to see like how far removed you'd have to be to like. When does the when does the juice not when is the juice not worth the squeeze in that context? Um, I mean, I think. great question um, I I think there has been moments where we have said or I've been in a position where we've said no because it just doesn't align with the values but then it it's also if you are and it's the perpetual problem of nonprofits of you know you are not you are always resource poor and you're helping people who are resource poor and it is this constant struggle we don't, you know, what we lack is this idea of a business model. We are a business. Um, it doesn't sound human to say that. It's not very humanitarian to say, but we are a business. We, we gain assets, we pay people, we have goals and outcomes, we collect revenue. And I think if you're constantly resource poor, it's hard to say no. Um, and I, I, I do think that's when a nonprofit's vision, their values, even though sometimes it could feel like it's a performative thing to have those, that's when when we do a strategy, making those things really 
reflective of who you are is important because that's when you can say this doesn't align we have to say no even though saying no means we're going to struggle yeah that actually kind of reminds me of like this concept that we were learning uh in class about you know i hate to say this because like i dislike this man with a burning passion but woodrow wilson was actually one of the first like you know presidents actually had a phd and he viewed administration in the government as like it has a necessary function and you know taking the inspiration because during his time it was all about the industrial revolution yeah. the process of like running the government as a business doing everything in the most effective and efficient manner as possible because there is a work that needs to be done but the government has to act like how can we best do that but how, how do you like get the most bang for our buck Again, dislike Woodrow Wilson a lot, <laughs> a, a lot of racist history with him. But I, I think another question I got is more on like the bureaucracies and the organizational structures of like you know both nonprofits and governmental agencies, since you have experience in both. Yeah. Like, what is the tendencies of like bureaucracies within organizations? How are you defining bureaucracy? Let's, like, let's push that a little bit. Let's usually when we think about bureaucracy, thinking like pitching things up to the food chain, yeah. uh, getting clearance or approval for things yeah um i think most of the time people just think of like you go submit an application to the government gotta wait 30 days you can get a notice you gotta go to the like i mean it's not totally off i remember when i had a, a few months in in my position and we had to um put together information for someone high up and it was very important um, so that they could be ready to present in a meeting. And this is with my not my, my government position. And the way the information had to be um, presented was in a folder with certain color paper clips on each side, and you couldn't get the paper clip colors wrong, and it had to be positioned correctly and I remember on a Friday it was a Friday at 6 and if you've ever worked in the government everybody goes home at 5 it's amazing I don't know how they do it they run things so well and efficiently they get to go home at 5 <laughs> but I was there because I never had to do like that administrative side of work before my positions were always just and I was putting the and I had the paper clip colors wrong and we had to redo it and I was just like what is this? This this has nothing to do with the content that is there, but you know. So that's just an example of what slowed it down and the requirements were to get information. And a lot of times in the humanitarian world, I I felt I I've worked with a lot of I have a lot of friends who work in the government side of humanitarian work um, with various governments. They're wonderful. They're well intentioned. I have a lot of friends who work with the UN. Um, well-intentioned but when you work in such a big bureaucracy like that it does slow things down it, to get money approved so that a implementing partner like a nonprofit can do it can take six months yeah because I'm always thinking like because it's it's not decentralized it's always centralized it, it always has to go to another department yeah. no, no, no nothing is like really connected so you're gonna have to pass the buck to someone well, else even yeah when I was in the field in like in any of those countries there was a humanitarian crisis happening in that country, we would have to get approval from some headquarters far away removed, you know, to, to do certain things. And so how, if you're supposed to be quick on your feet, right, to do life-saving activities, 
what does that mean if you have to get approvals or what does it mean that you have to like do certain signatures on paper and I know compliance and accountability is really important even in a humanitarian crisis but that's where things slow down in, in nonprofits it, it's not different um, again everyone is well-intentioned uh, but I think there's often a disconnect from the people who are you know even even us right there's sometimes a disconnect from what you are doing day to day and what I'm doing mm -hmm. and and I think closing that gap is a little easier than how it gets when you go higher and higher up. yeah and I would be and again this is strange this is strange away from this a little bit but just something to think just something to chew on but don't feel don't feel obligated to answer it but I would be interested to see like this like vast we're in we are the age in which technology is right now in terms of like information technology tracking and stuff i would be re, an advent in nanotechnology i'd be really interested to see how that's going to play out with like accountability in the governmental sector and as, as well as the nonprofit sector over the next 20 years i feel like that would be that's going to be something really fun to watch or not fun but like that's going to be something that is going to be really important i think yeah, and I, I, I see the validity in doing that. I also, you know, I, I caution with it. I, I think during COVID, we were making sure people were, you know, time on task, right? Like making sure people are actually working, but you judge that by the outputs and, and what the outcomes are. Not necessarily, they were not at the computer all eight hours that they were supposed to, or seven and a half hours, right? Um, I... I, I just, I don't know if tech is the way to track it and how you would, except for, mm -hmm. you know, check in and see if you're sitting at your desk right now. Oh, well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I think, you know, the thing that's really scary about that is that, you know, who is the people who get to make those decisions? Yeah. That's the big, that's, you know, because as much as we're, you know, we're sitting here, we don't really get to, and we can say, okay, well, that's a bad idea. Or, well, that's like, that's a bad idea. Let's not go forward with it. We're not, like, we're not going to be the decision makers in that respect. Well, I think it is highly unlikely that we will be. I think for our, the work we do, right, what is important is, are, are, the, are the families we work with doing okay? Yeah. And, that, and that is, we have such a clear marker of what it is. Know, it's not this intangible of did you like is your data spreadsheet updated or whatever other other people do I don't know what non humanitarians do um, but I I think there will always be back to that human side of it right like me we have to keep that human aspect that because we work with humans and tech can't control the com completely control the quality of what we're doing mm -hmm. it was kind of like remind me a little bit of like because we were talking about um, this kind of had to deal with like hiring in in a, in of a sense, but we were, it kind of reminded me of like a conversation we had earlier about what we kind of like balance out like the need uh, for a hire. It has to outweigh like the benefit, outweigh the benefit, because the benefit always has to be for the client. Yeah. All the work that is being provided and the work that it would take for people to be trained, it has to basically be an avenue to where it's going to always benefit the client. If that individual is not able to do the tasks and is going to chew up more time of the team and that negatively affects our the team's ability to actually work with that exactly. client, 
then it defeats our purpose in the and you kind of got me thinking about like the meritocracy of like nonprofits um but i don't know if there's like any like if you've ever experienced any sort of nepotism or um like you know basically the boys club mentality of oh we used to play golf together so i'm gonna give you the promotion instead yeah, like the country club aspect basically yeah. i mean it's a the humanitarian world is a small world right so you and i i came from the international side um and i mean i, I can't really speak to that but i will say it's a small world um and when you at least on that side when you've been out in the trenches with people form bonds and I think I see it on this side too with with the team um, and I I have with you know with the team I work very closely with and it's not so much as nepotism um, it's trust right would you trust this person because this is critical work and would you trust them and do they have that like loyalty and um, are they because there are not good, decent people out there yeah. who get into the humanitarian world. Yeah. Not to mention, like, qual qualifications. Like, are you able to even do this like that? Yeah. Because, again, we all want to help you, but, like, the specific ways that we're doing it, yeah. you at least got to have some sort of qualification. To or do you believe like, in it? Yeah. Or mm -hmm. will you like doing it? Or, like, yeah, like, for me, like, a guiding principle for my work is always, for this, for this job specifically, is, like, you know, how do you better like what's what action that I take next is going to do the most good for my client? Yeah, yeah, and I think what action am I going to take ne next is going to do good for the staff. And I definitely make mistakes in that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in this last year where we have been under extreme pressure, um, it it has fallen wayward because mm -hmm. I have been able to take care of myself fully, right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, but yeah, I think another good question, like that it will be unique to get your perspective on is, you know, being a woman and a person of color in a leadership position uh, in a male-dominated field that, you know, typically has always been white-dominated. Yeah. Yeah, with people who look like me. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I, I got what he meant. <laughs> so, like, what were your experience and viewpoints on that? And I have a couple of perspectives on that. I think when I started doing this work, especially abroad, um, I, you know, what is it called? I don't know, the, where you don't think you're capable of doing something. But Imposter syndrome? Yeah, and I still have that, right? And I think that's, that's normal for um, women and women of color as they start to go up into different leadership roles. But in the field, like questioning, well, who am I to come into this country to do this work and say, this is how you do this in your country and I was often supervising men and women who were much older than me I started my you know going abroad when I was 25 and also had years of like knowledge and work history and I think it's it's figuring out how you work side by side with someone and not directing someone um, and sometimes you're gonna direct people but gaining their trust um, makes you more confident in your ability to lead um, do I want to break glass ceilings? I don't, I, I mean, in the nonprofit world, it's limited, but I don't think so. Um, I don't know if my ambition is to go higher and higher because that takes me 
further and further away from the work. Um, and when I moved back to this country, I got a job where I did not work with people. Um, and I, I couldn't do it. And I did not work in a, a program that gave back to the community I was living in, and that was really hard for me too. Um, but as far as being a woman and a woman of color in a, I think it's why I took the job, because I saw the diversity in, in this office that we work in. Um, I also knew it was a value of the leader of the office to make sure that we had diverse perspectives in leadership um, and that it was something that would be voiced beyond this office to headquarters. So, I mean, the first time I, I went to a leadership meeting, it was very um, apparent of, you know, being outnumbered, I guess, for being a woman of color in the role. Any advice you would give to like any young professionals looking to get into like a leadership position in, you know, administrative sides of nonprofits or government agencies? Yeah, um, I think it's working on your, I mean, I, I, I think the, the hard skills are important, right? Uh, writing, um, speaking, good uh, analysis and quality, but I really think it's empathy. Like where, where do you fall on the empathy side? How are you able to form relationships with people? How are you able to listen to people and then take that into consideration in the decisions you make? And that oftentimes people don't think that's a skill you can grow or a muscle you can grow, but I think it is. I think it's something that's often missing from leaders um, and even in the humanitarian space. Um, so I think for me, that's a really big thing. And then step up when people ask, would you volunteer to do this? Or not volunteer, but there's this opportunity to do this. Um, do you want to? Step up, or if you see something that could be improved, put it out there, you know? It might not be taken right away, but shoot your shot. Yeah. Any, uh, <laughs> any specific <laughs> advice for any, for any uh, women of color that are also looking towards this field? Uh. Yeah, I mean, don't not go for it because of the fact that you're a woman of, like, don't let that hold you back. Um, and I also think, use it, right? Speak to your lived experience, speak to how that could transform the way the leadership culture and the administration or administrative aspects of the work happen. Um, I amplify it. But any uh, any other questions before we head to halftime? Uh, no, I'm good. All right, we'll be right back. Hey y'all, this is Prey. Just want to thank y'all for listening to the pod. I know we talk a lot about our work as humanitarians and the great services we're able to provide to our clients, but this is a sector that still could use a lot of help. So please, if you're able to donate to your local resettlement agency or national nonprofit that provides critical services to immigrant or vulnerable communities, please do so. Y'all stay blessed. Now back to the show. So like if you like are walking through like certain areas, like I was walking in uh, in that area the other day and I saw like a Black Lives Matter sign next to like a sign that says neighborhood patrol by neighborhood watch. I'm like, come on guys, come on. Or just like, 
a whole neighborhood that just got gentrified and they just have Black, Black Lives Matter signs. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. You didn't say that when you were kicking the families out. Yeah, but we were talking about this in a, yeah, we had talked about this in a previous episode, like my family, why, and this will be, this will be a future episode of why New Orleans is better than Atlanta, but, because, uh, uh, one, one city's, uh, one city's getting gentrified, one's not, I'm telling you that right now. There's a reason why no one wants to gentrify like New Orleans. I know, that's what makes underwater. it better. No, for, well, not, that's not the whole. But again, Atlanta is literally, like, one of the key places, like, one of the best, like, you know. Like excellent cities in, in the U.S. And New Orleans isn't. Yeah, I compared to Atlanta. Ever heard of jazz? Ever well, heard? that's how you define excellence, I guess. I in, know. In terms of wealth, like wealth, capital prosperi- wealth, prosperity, prosperity, yeah. um, yeah. and just kind of like ac- basic communal activity. Mm-hmm. Like again, they also have several HBCUs down in Atlanta. And they have them in New Orleans too, man. Eh, not the same as like. Yes, they. <laughs> yes, they do. Again, none of them can be. N-C-A-N-T. Which is, fun fact, not in Atlanta. It's in in North Carolina. (laughs) It's one of like the, one of the oldest like HBCUs in the country and, yeah. Oh no, yeah, no, no, not knocking at all. But that's a future episode. Yeah. But we're gonna talk about uh, a topic for like the second half of the show. We We talked about this with like We've kind of we've done, we've danced around a little bit, especially you know with like social media and stuff that's been happening. We're gonna talk about uh, slacktivism. Yeah, and like you know there is because again there are a few times because like especially during the pandemic, a, a lot of the like protests around Black Lives Matter movement, uh, around George George Floyd and all that. I feel like you know the internet was the perfect thing because like in a pandemic, even when some people were not physically able to go out and joining the protests, they were still able to engage and be active. But, like we're going to discuss, there's always some going to be some downsides when it comes to that. Oh, yeah, you know, you can, like, like uh, the war in Ukraine right now. Like, it, it shows you exactly what you need to do. Like, remember, we're in March when everyone had, like, Ukraine flags? I mean, there's Ukrainian flags over the highway passes mm-hmm. down in, on 66. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I haven't seen, like, I guess that makes sense, but, like, it doesn't do anything, really. I, I just am curious who put it up there. Interesting place. To I'm also just kind of like, I think it like it was huge for the first week, and then, like again, this has been something that's gone, been going on since like February, mm-hmm. still going on, and like it's, you know, it, it's not reaching the same level of tension. It was kind of like a more of a hot topic issue, mm-hmm. and I just I feel like the way the world is now, especially with the internet, like. There's always gonna be some new coming out every single time, especially like when we had to deal with like the orange man beforehand. Always some coming out. Yeah, and like it just gets caught up in this like news cycle, and we kind of like, and again like we you know we talked about in the first show like putting like human the human in humanitarian. Yeah. So like we still are dealing like there's still a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. And there's but, a humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. It's like that's what I was trying to go with. Is like we we had to deal with that even when like it was no longer in the news, where mm-hmm. it it only was brought up if like the news media actually wanted to be brought up. But after the first initial months, they kind of like lost a lost a narrative. Not a lot of people were paying attention anymore. But in the beginning, when like it was actually happening, you know, we had a lot of people reach out just to like offer their help and support. Or Once it stopped becoming 
in this news cycle. Or just people like looking for like clarity on the situation too. Or just that little slacktivism. I mean, to give people benefit of the doubt, like what what is continuous engagement for causes supposed to look like when A, there's so many causes and there's a limit to what you as an individual can do besides give money, um, hang a flag. I mean, in outwardly, right? A lot of the work when we talk about Black Lives Matter and other issues like that is inward, it's in the conversations you're ha having, it's in the things that aren't necessarily performative and posted, I would hope, right? And I think that's where I get lost with a lot of the causes is with this word you used that I had to Google, slacktivism. Uh, I said it right, mm -hmm. there you go. Um, is, yeah, I, I, I do see that and I, I, I get that, but then how do we, how do you gauge it is that and not someone trying to show that this is the way I, I do it? Like, how do you know it doesn't go beyond there? The flag, or the email, or the money. I would say that you can, I would say that uh, a couple things, like one, it would show, the way we like show support, the way that we show support for any sort of cause is we, is in a democracy we like will elect lawmakers who have like, who have that cause, who, who share our values in that. So I think that like the lack of like sort of political participation in that, and that is a, is one way, is one way you could say, yeah, this is like, Hang, just putting the flag up is a little ineffective. Yeah. yeah, and I think also just like the continuousness of like the like pressing that issue, like of course you can say Black Lives Matter back in twenty twenty. Are you still saying it today? Yeah. Do you still bring it up? Do you still try to like better yourself and the, in discussions of racial like hierarchy and like racism in America? You know, that that's where I see it. You know, especially with donations, I feel like even that is more of a kind of like a personal insight on this, I think if you're going to donate money and if you're doing for like, for the greater good, not for any sort of recognition or uh, basically getting a write-off on your taxes, if you do it anonymously, that's where, and do it recurrently as an anonymous donor, yeah. I think that really shows more of like the actual, you know, intent of an activist. And commitment yeah. to it. Yeah. That you're not looking for like the actual attention and this ain't like something to do so you can uh, beef up your taxes. It's true. Well, this is something that's kind of been happening for years. Yeah. Like, that was a, I mean, they, you know, uh, I'll stop doing this, but you know, they, uh, like they talked about it in the Bible. That's how old this issue is. Yeah. But I think just more of like, I don't know, again, we'll still take people's money if you want recognition and tax write-off. It's still good that you're actually supporting a cause, but I think, the main thing we don't really want like to get like main takeaway is more of that it, it, it was an actual cause to you that it w actually meant something and that you were actually doing something out of the goodness of your heart not trying to capitalize on the situation yeah. mm -hmm. and also I think we need to do a better job of holding our uh, our lawmakers accountable yeah. this kind of things because if your if your base is uh, if a, a majority of your base is saying you know black lives matter then you should probably listen to your base in and vote accordingly. You know, yeah. you shouldn't vote for, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, it gets like, okay, I'm a like, I'm a representative, my, 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 my constituency is like, Black Lives Matter. I'm like, yes, they do. I agree with you. And now let me vote on, 
Now, let me vote to pass these zoning laws, you know, like that kind of thing. Or let me reject uh, voting for a extension for voting rights. Mm. Or, or budgets, or, or non-budgets. Yeah, let me, let me slash kind of, social programs. Yeah, or, yeah, like slashing like, like any sort of social service and kind of demonizing the people that use it. Like, there's a reason why we have the safety net. Mm -hmm. Because you always need a safety net, otherwise you're... You like again. I see basically everything like as like the whole old saying of like, you know, a team is only only as good as its weakest link. So, you know, a team, an organization, a country, they're only as good as their weakest link, and it's kind of like the responsibility of the whole to actually improve each other. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a very idealistic way of looking at how we um, operate. Um, I, <laughs> I mean that, that like as, everything as a as a as a country as a whole. Yeah. 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 I just see it as like we have a we all live in a society. We have a moral obligation to to work together to build up the society and build our build up ourselves. Because. Yeah. Yeah, but unfortunately, you know, that's not really what our society has kind of become. It's become this like adversarial thing. You know? Yeah. Again, that's like the way I'm thinking is more big brain thinking. Are you thinking big brain? Big brain. Are you saying he's not thinking big brain? Are you saying that I'm using small brain? Yeah, yeah. Dang. Wow. Well, you know, what do I got to say about implementing good social programs? Let's go. Yeah. Yeah, we do apologize about it. It was not. That was fun. It, I mean, it was fun, but it's not like. Eh. It's, a, it's not serious. We're taking, we're, we're mixing the serious and the humor. That's what we do here. But let's go back on topic. Yeah, what were we talking about? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I do think... Slacktivism. Slacktivism. Yeah, we're slacking here. Well, yeah, no, like, um, I don't know. I, w I guess it's kind of like... I don't know. I had, this, I had this experience of, like, you know, well... Like, at the onset of the Ukraine crisis and in this country, especially, like, February, when people were, like... Yeah, because I I talk about like what I did, and people would be like, oh, well, because I'm in DC, uh, you know, and people would be like, oh, you know, like you guys, uh, oh, how do you feel about Ukraine? I'm like, Ukraine? No, 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 Afghanistan. That's still happening, and that's what I do on a, and my day to day looks like that. Not to discount that, but uh, you know, I think there's something to be said of like you know, there's, if it's it it's almost like a more palatable crisis to like people in this country because. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't peel my eyes away from the hurricane aftermath. I think we're attracted to what's put in front of us, for better or for worse. But then it's the intrinsic motivation of how do we continue yeah. to care. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of like when you see a wreck on a highway and you're passing by. You just, you know for a fact, like, you like you feel bad for that person, but you just, for some reason, you can't not look away of what just happened. Yeah. yeah. There's also that old, like, uh newsroom saying if it bleeds it leads yeah yeah but i think it's just like i don't know it's very much a i think we always try to give people the benefit of the doubt when it comes to like their causes and good causes but you know you always can't take that for face value mm -hmm. yeah but yeah face value but i think unless you probe you are able to probe more with them, you have to take it at face value, right? No. Um, you have to give the benefit of the doubt. It's not, at least in our work, our job to say, but are you really committed? 
um, yeah. because that's our job to be really committed. It's not necessarily theirs in the in the humanitarian. I mean, it is in their day to day. Like maybe they want to, but yeah, I feel like for you probably have like a better perspective on both like you know the home front of resettlement and the overseas part of the resettlement process. Like, what would be like the biggest takeaway from each one? Takeaway in terms of what? Like takeaway of like the main differences you see in those roles or in like those sides of like being in overseas helping them out and responding to like crises yeah crises i get to go home if i'm here you know to like my own home i think that's a difference um for me personally it feels more poignant and better fit to support people in the country I live in and the systems that I honestly from my own privilege point have to admit weren't very well versed in like the welfare system and the ins and outs of um, certain parts of our medical system and our educational system but to at least help people navigate a system that I can better support than in a place I can't um, mm-hmm. but I think that's the biggest difference as far as a personal experience. Um, there, it almost feels like things are forgotten, right? They, I, I don't think when you're in, and I was in these countries when there weren't big um, uh, campaigns to support, but I don't, I think there's a disconnect on what people actually think, what's going on. Uh, actually one thing we can do is like how which states in the south have you gone to okay I have been to almost all 50 states so I have been to well I said this before but I consider anything below Trenton to be the south um, growing up in Connecticut so I have been I I, I see noses flare nostrils flaring um, but it is it is the truth when you are a Connecticuter and you like went to school in Boston and lived in New York and I'm sorry what do you guys call yourselves in the state? Canetto. Canetto. What? Canetto. Oh my god. I don't know the official I said cutter. Canetto. No I know. But like I I don't know why that seems so out of place but I think like (laughs) it might not be the right one. I, I feel like Anytime you say that to like a southerner that anything below friends the south, you can't be mixing us with those Yanks. No, you can't. No, you know. Them are fighting words. Well, that's why they came up with Mid Atlantic because no one wants to claim them. Mm -hmm. See, the main difference is at least we started desegregating. Initial segregation. Yeah. Yeah. Ever been to Baltimore? (laughs) Or Boston? Uh, Yeah. Or New York? But. So where have I been in the South? Because I think we're gonna have to okay. disagree here, agree to disagree on where the South begins. Okay, well let's start at the bottom. Okay, Florida. You been? You been to Florida? What part of Florida were you? I was. I've been to Orlando. I've been to Miami. I have been to Tallahassee. I have been to Naples. Only one of those cities I actually like, and I still don't like. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, you can't. You know, like that's. I mean, Florida's just Florida. Different. It yeah. It's yeah. It's Florida. Um, I've been to Georgia. Nice. I've been to both North Carolina, South Carolina, Let's go. I've been to Kentucky and Tennessee. 
I do. Um, I have been to Louisiana. Hey. I've been to Texas. Woo. I have been to what are the other? Mississippi, Alabama. I have driven through Alabama. Haven't really stopped. I have not been to Mississippi. Don't. Uh, yeah. You're not missing a- anything between no, those two. No, but I'm curious. Mississippi's Mississippi's where it's at, honestly. It's a, yeah. like underrated state. Yeah, I will say. But yeah, uh, where in Louisiana were you? New Orleans. My first, um, I mean, typical, but my first ever time to New Orleans was when I was like eight, and my sister was no, I was yeah, I was eight, thirteen. So I was still young, and like you know, my parents were cool. My sister was in that stage, and happened to go in Mardi Gras um, <laughs> and I loved catching all the beads but my sister was aware of the debauchery that was happening in the presence of her parents and she was just like Mortified. why are we here right now um, so I've been to I've only been to New Orleans it is very much Sodom and Gomorrah it is like just yeah I was gonna say like how old was your sister at, at the time 13 yeah wait how old like how old are you I was eight Oh, okay. Yeah, so We're, I thought it was cool. Okay, so yeah, uh, I was about to say, like... I collect all the well, beads and the coins. Or at least, like, with a 13-year-old would be like, why are we here during Mardi Gras? Yeah. Well, or at least question that. Yeah, and I don't want to be witnessing these things with my parents right now. Yeah, that's always and not I the best. quite understand. Yeah. It's I'll like when you watch an R-rated movie with your parents and, like, one of those scenes comes up and yeah, you're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what to do right now. <laughs> this feels weird. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, you didn't see that. It's good. <laughs> Were you able to try at least, like, southern cuisine? Yes. Did you try some of our delicious food? I mean, oh, I had a really good friend who lived in North Carolina, and there is a biscuit fast food place. What's it called? Bojangles. No. Biscuitville? Biscuitville. Yes. Great Biscuitvilles. Bojangles and I have an awkward relationship because, or, like, I, I don't look back on them fondly because I did a three-day uh, hike in the Smokies um, and my friend decided to our last meal before we started the hike was to have Bojangles and I don't know if you've done a three-day trek um, 18 miles you're camping it's backcountry you don't eat Bojangles before you do that yeah. let's just let's just well, actually that. no we do that yeah, I mean, I, you do that and you regret that. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, I think our, like, in North Carolina, the main one or main place you go get food is cookout. Cookout. Is that, like, someone's cookout or is that a name of a restaurant? It's a, a restaurant. restaurant. Yeah. So basically, it's, like, fast food cheap eats that, you know, if you're sober and go during the day, it's going to not be terrible. not going to be the greatest thing because, like, you're paying five bucks for essentially, like, two mains and a, a big main and a drink. Yeah, like their their like, sides are mains. Yeah, like so you can get like chicken a, nuggets as so a like side. A, so like a TGI on Friday? Better than that. Oh yeah, like a way better than that. But yeah, there's also like, uh, but yeah, we, so yeah. The and Waffle House. Waffle, we talked about that the last episode. I've never yeah. been to a Waffle House. You should See, go. See, that you definitely need to. It's a, it's definitely an experience. I think we kind of like, I always think of Waffle House because like the hurricane that just happened in, uh, Florida, mm-hmm. one of the biggest indicators that it was going to be a huge thing was the Waffle House is closing. That's a great marker. I unfortunately associate southern food, unless it's been homemade, with like Cracker Barrel and that stuff. Not yeah. Cracker Barrel is very mid. But that was like me and my family driving up and down 95 on road trips, and mm-hmm. that would be like there and you'd stop. Oh, yeah, no, like if you're. I, if, I hate going down 95 because mm-hmm. the second you cross into 
Devor from uh, NC to Virginia, you see that Confederate flag. Yeah. I mean, I saw it in I saw it in Pennsylvania when I was in Pennsylvania. You see it in Virginia, like the minute you start driving out past, you know, like the outskirts of Fairfax, you start seeing that. Yeah, honestly, like the crazy thing for me is like even where I'm at, even if you skip the liberal bubble and you go into the Trump country, yeah, you still don't see that many Confederate flags. I came up here, I'm like, damn. Dude, yeah. I, t- that t- I told you when, like, uh... You're the one saying Nova's not, like, the it's South. It's not the South. It is. It is not. It is. Bro, it is. It is not. Two people of color are telling you it's Southern because it's racist. It's also Virginia. Are you saying it's... Okay, you're calling it Southern because it's racist? Yes, it has a history of racism. Okay, but you always have said... You're on the record of saying that you consider Virginia part of the South. It is. I mm-hmm. mean, it technically is. Yes. You don't think it is? I, culturally, I say Richmond down. So that's like me culturally saying Trenton down. Kinda, but like uh, I, I, I so consider... basically now you're salty. <laughs> no, I'm not salty. I consider Nova like part of the DMV. I mean the way BC. we we even they then vote, like it it goes blue most of the time, but Virginia it is, doesn't go. Do not red. be fooled. Oh, by, it's the South. I, like, they're again yeah. Virginia Beach. Remember the whole like uh, the whole debate about like um you know CRT basically starting starting Loudoun County. That Virginia. is true. Yeah. yeah. So, oh yeah, that's where Fairfax is. Exactly. So again, it's it was like one of the richest and more like a democratic controlled like county. Still was the epicenter of like going against like actually teaching about racism in America and actually going about like, solving like actually having conversations to truly unpack the racial history that's, of the country. You know what? That, you know what? I retract my statement. I'm I'm now in agreement with you. Uh, there we go. Off topic, but driving down ninety five. Between North Carolina and South Carolina, what's that? What's that thing? Or maybe it's in South Carolina, like south of the border. Oh my god! Oh my oh, goodness! Yeah. But I was I was gonna make five my... miles away. Twenty five miles away. Let's go Are again. you gonna stop? Are you gonna go? Yeah. Go, mom. Can I go? No, no. That's I'm a, not going. And it is the biggest disappointment. It is, and the thing is, like, the reason I actually went down there is because, like, from my beach college town down there, it was just like. It was just a second wave just going to Myrtle Beach. But I was gonna say, like, with the Confederate flags, like I was in I was in western Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago. I told you about this, yeah? Yeah. Like literally I, w- I was go- we're driving through this little small town and there is a there's like a uh, one of those electronic billboards with a Nazi flag on it. Whoa. I know, right? Like legit? Yes. Why? Like no message about like no. Screw Nazis or no Nazis, love Nazis. Like, no, it, it, it was, was like, literally just a. It was someone's house. No, it was a billboard, a billboard in the town. Ta- someone took out this ad to put a Nazi flag, and someone approved of it. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, ah, all right. Um, and I was just like, yeah, Butler County, Pennsylvania. That was. Uh. Yeah, I mean, Confederate flags are. That's one thing. Yeah, it's they're intense. I mean, same level of that. I think I remember my same friend who took me to Bojangles before a three-day hike, got married in Virginia. She lived in the Blacksburg area. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful, oh. in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Lovely. But where she got married was in like the countryside. And I remember we were in a party van, driving up to the venue, which is her friend's farm. And the car got stuck, and right to the right was a house with a huge Confederate flag. And I looked around in the car, and I was like, okay, so I die first. All right. I was like... (laughs) I mean, like, 
I think one of the funniest things that, at, or kind of like, as also very much cringy anytime you go, is like when you go to a, like a white person's w wedding and they decide to have the wedding at a plantation venue. Yeah, that's, uh, I unfortunately, like, and I've done like, did you guys have cotillion? Yeah, plantation, the plantation ball, dead balls, it's just like, it's disgust. It, it, it honestly, like, I know it's like cultural, it's cultural, like, in a weird way, but for me, it's like, I just find myself, like, even then, I, even when I was younger, I was like, this is, this is gross. Yeah. A girl I was dating in high school who broke my heart, uh, shocker, right? Uh, she, uh, she went to cotillion without me, and I was like, oh. Yeah, but these kinds of things know no borders, right? So I grew up in Connecticut and experienced very similar, not cotillions, but like, when you thought your neighbor liked you, they're like, oh, they don't really, it, it's, they like you, but they don't like what you represent. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also just like, oh, 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 I was about to say like, you probably also experienced this too, um, especially within like, different immigrant communities, colorism in that, oh, that sure. aspect. Like, for me, my skin complexion is like the fairest of my family. And I, even for my own mother, like getting disgusted, ah, oh, when, I, when I got a tan. I love getting tan and my mother still will be like, I prefer you not tan. I'm like, oh, I love you no matter what, ma. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, colorism's real within, within your own community. Um, but I think there's more conversations about that and yeah. there's more ways people embracing it. And yeah. And also like, especially, or at least from my perspective uh, in my family, like, especially in a lot of Southeast Asian cultures, like the caste system is still ingrained. Oh, for sure. And it's just like, it, in a sense, it's very disgusting in how like it operates. Yeah. And I just see it as like, you're, you know, you kind of like already assimilated or accepted this idea of everyone's equal and coming over here, you kind of also have to put that aside. But yet there's always like, you know, constant competitions within immigrant communities of, you gotta be better than this person. Well, yeah, and even talking about race and racism within my community with my aunties and uncles, you know, uh, there's a lot of anti-black racism within the community. There's a lot of anti-Muslim racism within the community. And, and so those conversations are happening, but they're still very difficult. Um, and, you know, there's a long history of that within our community. And so, I think that's where I focus on my own day-to-day -day conversations of, you know, non-slackism. Yeah, and it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like what you talked about earlier with like the uh, trying. How do we not make this like a top-down approach? Yeah. Because how do we take the so we like, and I think that our organization, to 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 your credit, as an uh, as an administrator, does a really. To, all, to everyone's credit, yeah. does a good job of like going like kind of bottom up, kind of bottom up. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear that. Well, I think we're, we're getting close to yeah. running out of time, aren't we? Yeah. Well, we yeah. are. Thanks again for thanks everyone for listening. Uh, remember to like the videos on YouTube. Uh, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And, and a big shout out to the Banana Pudding, Pudding for coming out to thanks this for episode. Yeah. It was great good. talking to you guys. Yeah, y'all be good. It was, it, was, it was a pleasure having you on your show. Y'all be good. Y'all be good. Y'all here? Y'all here.